Uh, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of uh, How We Made It in E-Commerce. I'm your host, Jeff Korea. Today, our guest is Ilan Lee, the CEO and co-founder of Exploding Kittens, a popular card game that sold over 10 million copies and also set a crowdfunding record. I believe you raised is it 9 million. Yeah, so right, right around there. Yeah, so along with Glowforge, I believe no one comes close to the amounts you've raised. It's interesting because... There have been uh, a number of people who have gotten larger amounts, but the thing that our company is all about, the thing I'm most excited about is number of backers because we're just all about the community and how many people we can get excited. And so I believe we still hold the number one spot with about 220,000 backers. For wow, that is amazing. So, so yeah. smaller amounts, a lot more people. Yeah, smaller amounts, a lot more people. That is absolutely the case. Well, <laughs> I should say... The second place is, at least on Kickstarter, is about um, 100,000 backers, and that was for a fairly small amount of games. So small amounts, larger number of people, and then weird stuff like Exploding Kittens happens and throws a curveball at us, and it's hard to exactly track why uh, that was such uh, an anomaly. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I'm curious about. And so maybe you can start by telling us, like, how, how did you come up with the idea? Uh, for exploding sure. kittens, you're you are a game designer for Xbox. You studied computer science. How did you come up with the idea? Yeah, I spent my whole life designing games. I'm I'm the oldest of four kids, and so it was always my job to keep everybody entertained. So, games were were something that I learned to design when I was like four or five years old, and just haven't stopped. But traditionally, I've always worked in the digital space. I worked as the uh, chief design officer for Xbox and Xbox Entertainment. And my job was always build video games, make thing, pixels on the screen. That was my specialty. After doing that for about 20 years, I decided enough with the screens. Like it's really, what if I used all this, all this learning that uh, I've gained over the last two decades and tried to just get people to put their damn phones down for a second. And what if the goal was instead of to stare at pixels, what if it was to stare at each other and to laugh and to share experiences? And I decided at that moment, this was in 2015, I thought, what if we did a card game instead? So I started a company with some friends and we put it up on Kickstarter. Very interesting. I mean, I've seen various studies about how the explosion of cell phones, like people no longer talk to each other. Families gather around for a meal, everyone's looking at their cell phone. And so you decided to do the opposite thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's a curious thing when I believe that although video games are wonderful, I, I play video games every day. I, I'm still addicted to them, but I, I believe they are inherently lonely. I think that any activity where you're sometimes connected to a lot of people online, but not connected to the people in your room, I just I feel like that's isolating and it's the wrong direction. There's a time and a place for it. I, like I said, I, I do it every day, but I think the pendulum has swung too far. And there's a deep-seated desire on a lot of people's parts to return to connecting and celebrating the people in the room. So that's what I've been building for the last five years. Indeed. You know, looking at your website, it just oozes creativity. It's clear that you, you lead a very creative company. You're a very creative person. You won, I believe, best game, best ad campaign, best idea awards. And recently you created this game poetry for Neanderthals that could be played on Zoom during the lockdown. Yeah. So 
Many companies struggle with generating new ideas that are commercially successful, and your company seems to do this so consistently. So is, is creativity something some people just have or can it be taught? Is there hope for the rest of us? Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know. I don't know if there's hope for me at this point. So I think of creativity as really just a hack. Like I spend a lot of time thinking about like where do good ideas come from because I'm constantly on the hook to come up with another one and another one. And so I think about it a lot because uh, there's a lot of pressure involved, especially when people are expecting good ideas from you. So here's what I've got it down to. This is very much a work in progress, but here's where I think ideas come from. And then I'll plug it into poetry for Neanderthals in a second and you'll see how it applies. I think there are three parts to creativity. Part one is raw material. You want to get as much stuff in your brain as you possibly can. That means don't watch TV, watch all the TV. Don't read books, read all the books. Like watch all the movies, listen to all the podcasts. Like as much as possible, just get the stuff in your head. Pay attention to the stuff you love, focus on the stuff, the stuff that you don't like, figure out why creative ideas, interesting ideas, other innovators, whatever it is, just get it in your head. Don't think much more about it than that. Just fill to capacity every single day as much as you possibly can. Because it's that raw data that you're really going to call upon later on without having any idea uh, what you need or when you need it. So that's part one. Part two, I think, is define a problem really, really well. Um, I hate blue sky creativity. I hate the notion of Got to think of a game. Let's think of a game. Got to think of an ad campaign. Let's think of an ad campaign. I like it. We are all stuck in quarantine and we're stuck with the same two or three people in our houses and we want something to do with them. Let's create a game for that scenario. Like that's so much more interesting to me is when you, when you put constraints around things, you work within those constraints to come up with things that no one's thought of before. So that's part two. Really define the box as concretely as you can. And then part three is this mix and match process. Okay, so we know what we're trying to solve. We have no idea how to solve it. But we got this whole brain filled with all that raw data. So let's start mixing things together. What if we took Uno and mixed it with slingshots? What if we took uh, freeze tag and mixed it with jumping jacks? Like, and, and the answer, almost all of, always, is going to be, nope, that's stupid, let's try again. Nope, that's stupid, let's try again. And you're going to go through that over and over and over and over again until eventually two little things, two puzzle pieces snap into place. And you'll notice it. It's going to feel really good when that happens. Uh, when two things that have never been mixed together before suddenly snap into place. That movie you saw, plus that weird quote from a podcast that you loved. Wait a second, what if we thought about that? And then maybe you'll add another puzzle piece and another, another. And sometimes you'll have to move backwards and, and try other things. But I think it's that process. If you can get that engine, that loop going using those three elements, to me at least, that's worked really well for coming up with new ideas and specifically solving problems in front of me. Interesting. So for, uh, for exploding kittens, did you go through that process? Did you, did you discard lots of bad ideas to finally get this that seemed to, to have legs and just take off? So exploding kittens very much is those three things. Exploding kittens started with a ton of raw material in my head. I play all the games. I, I play so many games. And so a knowledge of what is fun and what is not fun. For me, what is fun, what is entertaining is not a game. What's entertaining is a game that makes the people I'm playing with entertaining. So I'm constantly searching for raw data that checks that box. What 
let me have fun with my friends. What made the people sitting around the table superstar versions of themselves, extraordinary versions of themselves? What was the tool set that unlocked that? So I'm always looking for that because that's what I care about most in games. So my head is filled with all of that raw material. Then uh, to, find the, to find the problem. Uh, Exploding Kitten started when a friend of mine, Shane Small, came to me with a game idea for a mobile app. And he said, what if we could figure out a way to play Russian roulette with a deck of cards? And we tried it. We built a paper prototype with a deck of cards. And it was no fun. And the reason it was no fun is because we had just started. And we knew that there was probably something fun in there. We just had to discover it. So now we had constraints, right? Russian roulette with a deck of cards. What a fascinating box we've built for ourselves. We've got all this raw data. We want the people to be entertaining. We want the game to just be the tool set for that entertainment. And then three is just mix and match. What things can we plug in here? And what we eventually settled on was we went through that process for every single card in the deck. Pieces snapping together. Sometimes they'd snap and it was really satisfying. Sometimes they didn't fit at all and we'd throw it away. We just kept doing that until we had a collection of cards that we really liked. And we started playing the game with all our friends. And after a lot of refinement, like every time we played, we would eliminate some cards, bring in other cards, change the rule sets on cards, change the rule sets for the entire game until, I don't know, it was probably this really intensive process for like two weeks. And after that, we thought, man, everyone we showed this to really loves it and there's nothing else we want to change. Maybe we ought to start taking this seriously. Interesting. And you know, by the way, I share, I think I share your philosophy on creativity, but there, there's a school of thought that says if you do the things you describe. You know, you amass a lot of knowledge in a domain, you define a problem, and then you mix and match. You will only ever come up with like incremental iterative things or solutions. Whereas there are people who would be like what you might call blank slate creativity, beginner mindset. It feels like physics. People who are really young, they're not constrained by what came before them. And they come up with like extremely novel, never seen before type of solutions. What do you think of that? I personally am not capable of that. I acknowledge that that exists, but I would say that most innovation you see, it's that old quote, standing on the shoulders of giants. I, I think that those young kids who are coming up with solution sets that we've never seen before, they're not starting from scratch. They're starting with, there's a whole bunch of solutions and they all suck. So let's not do those. Let's go higher than that. Let's do better than that. Let's bring in a new mindset that's never been here before. I think all of it is incremental. It's just what you're describing happen to be giant increments instead of the small ones that I'm best at. Got it, got it. Yeah, so your, your game seemed to have potential for like a cartoon series or a movie. Any, any chance of this ever happening? I mean, the easy answer is, man, I'd love that. We are a small company and we're really focused. Like we love building games and we want to put out only the best games and the ones that we're in love with and the ones that we think everyone else will love. My business partner, Matthew Inman, who writes and created The Oatmeal, he illustrates all the cards for all the games, and he does all the boxes, and he names all the games. He's like the most creative person in the world. But between the two of us, we have this like laser focus on, here's a task, here's a game. We want to finish this game by X date. Let's get the thing out there. When we started thinking about larger projects like television, historically, we have avoided those because they're distracting. And they're going to make it so that we don't focus on the game that we want to get out this year, or like this year, the three games that we want to get out this year. Historically, that has been the case. However, this last year, um, we uh, took on a very strategic partner, 
Peter Chernin with the Chernin Group as an investment fund. And they bring an incredible set of new skills to the table. Namely, they're really good at making TV and movies and entertainment. So we're just at the very beginning of those kinds of conversations to see how they can help us, what we can do together. But uh, certainly for the first time ever, we have the right people in the room. And those who, while our laser focuses games, theirs very much is TV and movies. And so we're really excited to see how we can work together. Let's talk a little bit more about the business side of things. How many customers do you have today? How much revenue? I can't exactly talk about revenue. And the reason I can't talk about revenue is because when we start talking about numbers, dollar amounts, people look at us as, well, why didn't you do X, Y, and Z? And why didn't you try this other bigger thing? And the answer is, we'd rather not talk about money because we invest almost every penny we make back into the company. And we like that to be invisible. We like it so that when you write to customer support and say, hey, I, I damaged a card, no questions asked. We're just going to send you another game. When something bad happens and your, your house burns down, we're going to send you care packages. We're going to treat all of our community like their family. And we don't want money to be involved with that. We want you to treat us the way that we want to treat you, which is we're all in this together. We all love to have fun. We're going to do everything in our power all the time to facilitate that. That said, how big is the family? We've sold more than 10 million copies of the game in the last five years. And so that's a lot of people to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. People can look at the price of the game on the site and multiply by that number and get a rough estimate. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so you talk about this not having pressure to... Um, you know, like to talk numbers or, or to be overly concerned about that. I suppose in your situation, you, you don't have external investors to pressure you, like other than Peter Chernin, who, whom you mentioned, is all your capital from that initial uh, crowdfund raise? Yeah, we are in a very unique situation. Our company needed $10,000 to exist. We made $10,000 in seven minutes. And then at the end of 30 days, we had about $9 million. Now, we also had 220,000 orders to fulfill. And that was an enormous task. That was harder. I worked harder at that than anything I've ever worked on in my life because none of us knew how to make games. Our plan, what we thought this, the way we thought this was going to go was, all right, we'll sell, I don't know, a thousand copies of the game, 5,000 copies of the game, a hundred copies, right? Small. And what we'll do is I'll just invite all my friends over. We'll all sit in my garage. I'll order pizza and beers. We'll stuff boxes. We'll send them out to our backers and we're done. And then we're going to go off and get real jobs. That was our goal. By the time the campaign ended, when we realized none of us, none of us with all, there's no garage big enough in the world to stuff 220,000 boxes. And to be fair, I'm assuming each person ordered one copy. Most people, the average order was two and many were three. And so when all is said and done, it was the total order amount was over 700,000 copies of the game just for that first 30 month order form. And there's just nothing we can do. There's, there's, no, there's no way to do it. So we were forced very quickly to grow up and to take all that money and invest it right back in the company and say, We got to hire help. We got to learn what we don't know. We have to figure out what warehousing means. We got to figure out what distribution means. We got to figure out how to actually mass produce this thing. We got to build a customer service team. So we didn't need outside investors. And for the first five years of existence, we didn't have any outside investors. But it is also fair to say that we took almost all of that money 
and constantly poured it right back into the company so that we could continue to grow, so that we could continue to put out more games. That is a true first world problem, you know? Yeah, no kidding. Having all this money. Such, so lucky. Like, it's an unheard of story. It's my, this is my fourth startup. And I am very, very aware of how rare and how unique this is. So since then, since that initial set of 220,000 people who backed your campaign, who all became customers, you've acquired many more customers. And so what, yeah. what, what are your main channels for acquiring new customers? So for new customers, we largely rely, we do two things. Traditionally, historically, we've relied entirely on word of mouth. We post things to our existing social media channels. Matt with the oatmeal has an incredible following. And so we, we announce things that way and, and on our website. And that's worked really well. That's allowed us to grow beyond the size of most game companies in the world. Then uh, this last year, because we wanted to grow farther than that, we've started really investing in creative ad campaigns. We still do the same thing. We post to social media, but now we're actually buying ads. And we're figuring out product placement on Amazon and within Target. We're working on those relationships. None of this is rocket science. None of this is very interesting, honestly. The interesting part, the creative part for us is how do we always build these things so that it feels like an invitation to join our family instead of a request to purchase something? And how are you doing that? What are some of the tactics you're using? I'll give you an example. One of the things that we have to do is we have to go to conventions, game conventions. Well, back, back when we were all still meeting in public places, game conventions uh, were a big thing. And we would go to six or seven of them a year, and they all sucked. They were horrible. They're noisy and crowded, and they're all exactly the same, right? You, you walk up to a booth, our booth, you give us money, we give you a game, you walk away. You have no memory of that interaction. You're not part of our family. You haven't joined a community. And when you go home, you're not going to remember us or that interaction at all. We have failed at that opportunity, at that marketing, that invitation sucks. And we did that, exactly that, for a year and a half, almost two years, until we decided to change things. And we decided, to look, what if we apply that creativity, apply that formula, and we thought, okay, what if we built a vending machine? The size of our box is, it has to look like a booth, right? Our creativity box has to perform like a booth at a convention. We've got all this raw material in our heads of some creative stuff that we can do. But what if we mix vending machine with chaos? And so what we did was we built a vending machine, this eight foot tall, fur covered, beautiful vending machine that looks like a cat that just wants to give you a hug. And at its core, it works exactly like you'd expect. You walk up to it, you put money in, you push a button and your game comes out. That's it. Really simple, but still fun. But there's one extra element, which is a button on there that says random item, $1. And if you push that button for $1, a truly random item will come out of the vending machine. Truly random. A pineapple, a toilet plunger, an origami animal, a costume, a burrito, like the, a real hot, steaming hot burrito that you can eat. We figured out a way to stock this thing with more than 2,000 random items. So you can watch this thing for hours and never see the same thing come out twice. But here's the thing. Everything that would come out is custom fit to the person that walks up to the machine. When we see someone in cosplay, uh, Danny Targaryen, the mother of dragons from Game of Thrones, right? When she walks up to the machine, a perfectly crafted dragon egg comes out of the machine when she pushes the random item button. Impossible, right? Her mind is blown. Everyone's mind is blown. It's not a possible thing, but there it is right in front of her. The trick is, the way we do this, this whole thing, 
is it's not a vending machine. It's a vending machine costume. Inside are eight people, human beings, running around like crazy to fulfill these requests. And it works so well that the line for this thing became hours long, two and sometimes three hours long. The line for our vending machine would wrap down down the hall in front of other people's booths, blocking fire lanes outside the convention center and sometimes down the street. And that we use that as, as this wonderful opportunity to watch people in cosplay come up in line and think, okay, we got half an hour, we got 30 minutes to, to bedazzle a watermelon to look like a dragon egg go, right? Like whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. But I look around at these conventions and everyone's doing the same thing. For everyone, marketing is the same thing. We're going to build a stage. We're going to take your money. We're going to give you a game. Maybe we'll have fireworks or explosions or whatever nonsense they build. Nobody remembers any of that crap. Everybody remembers the vending machine. The vending machine trends on every social media channel it hits because no one's ever seen anything like it before. And it's an invitation to play with us. As creative as you are in how you look and what you say and how you behave, this machine is going to be at least that creative in return. And we're going to play together because that's the invitation that I'm talking about. That is your chance to join our community. And we're going to make it the greatest party you've ever been to. I love the idea. You obviously succeeded at the hardest thing at, at a convention, which is getting and sustaining attention and being memorable. How do you then parlay that into a card game sale? Do people naturally inquire, okay, who are these guys? And then go and buy, or is there more of a nudge to say, okay, by the way, here's what we do. Yeah, to a large extent, we don't care. That's kind of the secret. What we want is for you to have a good time and know and know who hosted the party where you had a good time. Maybe you'll post about it. Maybe you'll talk to your friends. Maybe you'll buy our game. Maybe you'll, it'll just sit dormant in the back of your head until next year. All perfectly reasonable for us. What we really care about is that we stay true to this notion of we care more about you having a good time than anything else. We have products that we think will assist with that. But if all you ever do is give us a high five and keep going on with your day, that's totally fine. And we love the opportunity to high five you back. Got it. Yeah, so looking at your site, what, one of the things I noticed is you don't have any merchandise for sale. Something that yeah. that seems like it would be yeah. obvious uh, additional revenue stream. Earlier, you talked about singular focus on just the card games, no TV, no cartoon. Is that because of that? Like you wanted to stay focused or... Yeah, that's, we'll that's merchandise exactly. at some point. We might. We we actually did merchandise for a small amount of time. I think the whole team realized very quickly that is it's just too distracting. It's not the focus. It's not where things are supposed to be. Every minute of the day that we spend designing a jigsaw puzzle or a plush character is a minute that we're not spending creating the next game. And while we're small, let's just stay laser focused. So yeah, someday, someday we'll we'll hit that again. I'm sure of it. But for now, uh, we want to make the best games we possibly can. Yeah, earlier you spoke of families and inviting people to join your family. How many employees do you have today? We have about 35 uh, right now. Up until last year, we were all working out of my backyard. And when we hit about 16 people, my wife finally said, uh, I'm sick of waiting in line to use my own kitchen and bathroom. So get these people out of here. So we got a real office. We all moved in, COVID hit, and now we're all back home. (laughs) What would you say are the main challenges in your business today? I'm assuming you've fully solved the fulfillment issues, uh, storage issues we talked about earlier to operate at that scale, but any other challenges you you have? Our biggest challenge, if you had asked me that last year, our biggest challenge was exactly that, was fulfillment. 
we're good at making games. We're good at marketing those games. We're good at building beautiful boxes that you're going to want to buy and open up and play with. The trick is that's only half the business. The other half is getting that game from the manufacturing plant into your hands. And we knew nothing about that. Like when we started, literally, we knew nothing about that. And the steps involved there are so complex. The manufacturing process is so hard and the shipping process and then the distribution process and warehousing and the trucks and the different labels that have to go on certain products and then removed and relabeled based on what retailer you want to get them to and selling to retailers, getting them excited and placement within a store where you sit on a shelf and which way the box faces and how you give instruction to the clerks who are putting the things on the shelves, like so much work and so many people. And our task, our focus over the last 12 years, half of the company, the task was all of that, 100% of that is going to come in-house. We are going to do all of that ourselves. And that's a Herculean task. And I'm very proud to say that we're about 85% there. And hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be at 100%. It's so hard. When I say, you know, last year we were at 16 people, now we're at like 35, almost 100% of the additional staff has been to solve that task. How do we build the production pipeline? How do we make it efficient and beautiful and fun and really and help us get things where they need to be faster and more effectively than any outside vendor could possibly help us with? So that's been tough. And it continues to be the biggest challenge for our company. Like now that we've got most of that done, you know, it's that whole thing where like the last 20% is going to take 80% of the effort. That's kind of where we are right now. We've got that last nudge to go through, but man, is it hard. And uh, I'm really hoping December, we've set our own internal deadline for December to bring everything in-house. Man, I'm, we're going to run at that goal like crazy people. I am rooting for you. Thank uh, you. Are, are the games made in the U.S.? Some of the games are made in the U.S. Most of the games are made in China. We went through a really, really interesting, like the stuff that we make in the U.S., whenever we do small run games, always in the U.S. Whenever we do prototyping, always in the U.S. Anything that we need fast, intricate, uh, as long as we produce like less than 20,000 units, it's much easier and better and just better all around for us to do in the U.S. It's once you get beyond that point, once you're into the 100,000 and the million uh, unit production orders that there's unfortunately no economic way to do it domestically. You have to go to outside partners like China or Europe or Mexico. Got it. Uh, who are the two entrepreneurs from the e-commerce age that you admired most and why? Ah, it's actually, um, I read an article about someone this morning that just blew my mind. Tristan Walker, the company is um, Bevel. So uh, Tristan Walker makes essentially products for African-American consumers. His initial thing, I read, man, I spent so much time reading his stuff because once I read this one article, I just went down this rabbit hole. His initial problem was there were no shaving products that did not irritate his skin. And all the products on the market were tailored towards Caucasian men. And it did not help him. And it irritated his skin. And he would like show up to a job interview and his skin would be blotchy and red and irritated because... He was using shaving products that were not made for him. And what is most impressive about this guy is with that laser focus, he said, there is an audience for this. Nobody believes me, but there is an audience for this. There is a need for this. And there is no one fulfilling that need right now. And he spent years building exactly that product. 
And to his credit, he just, I think last year, maybe the year before, uh, sold it to Procter & Gamble, you know, for an undisclosed amount, but it's an enormous amount, like success beyond success. And I, I, I must've spent two hours just following, reading, absorbing every thread on this guy, because to me, he is the epitome of build that box <laughs> and then stay there, solve that thing, whatever it takes, no matter what the obstacles are, you know, you've got the solution, get it done. Holy crap. Just so inspiring. So yeah, very, very top of mind for me because uh, it was just, just the greatest thing. Who's someone um, else you admire? Someone else. Yeah. Um, Commerce age 2000 and, and, and later. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm going to list someone who's actually been on your show, uh, Dan Shapiro. Dan Shapiro is uh, a good friend of mine. So Dan Shapiro is a serial entrepreneur. He started, he's, he started so many different companies. But I want to tell you one story about why I'm Dan Shapiro's biggest fan. He wanted to, to do a board game. You talked about this on your show. His board game was called Robot Turtles. But I want to take a step back and talk about why he built that board game, how he built that board game, and why he called it Robot Turtles. His goal was, can I build a board game to teach young kids how to program? And I was talking to him about this, and he told me what he was trying to do. And he had mapped out the problem set. He's like, okay, I need to learn how to draw, and I need to learn how to make cardboard, and I, I need to learn how to name this thing. And I don't know how to do any of those things, and actually, I'm not going to ever be any good at any of those things. And he had to come up with creative solutions for every one of those. So he needed characters. He knew for a long series, but he wanted them to be called turtles. And how is he going to get turtles? He can't draw. He doesn't know any artists. He can't afford any. So he went and he mechanical turked this entire thing. He went online and he basically paid a set amount of money to a ton of people, hundreds of people, tiny amounts, five or $10 to, hey, draw a character for him. Now he's got all these characters. He has no idea if any of them are any good. So now he pays pennies to other people to say, hey, look at these five. Which one do you like? Hey, look at these five. Which one do you like? And he went through this process of using the internet as a brain and a skill set that he didn't have to slowly narrow this thing down. Okay, now I know they're turtles. Now I know what the characters look like. Now I know how to manufacture them. Now I know exactly what this product should be like. Now I know what to call this product. None of that was a thing that he was good at or a skill set that he had. He learned how to acquire all those things cheaply and easily and proved that like, he doesn't need to go raise money around this thing. What he needs to do is use the resources available to him to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. And he did. And I watched this whole process and it was one of the most magnificent things I've ever seen. And I'm undoubtedly misremembering or misquoting little parts of this, but to watch this guy in action was so mind blowing. And uh, yeah, when I grow up, I want to be like Dan. Dan is an amazing guy. So in closing, <laughs> what's one piece of e-commerce advice you'd like to share with, with our audience? Perhaps something you wish someone had told you when you were just getting started. Oh, great sage, Alan Lee. Give us a hard deck so we can fulfill our e-commerce distance. All right. All right. E-commerce advice. I wish that someone had told me that the decision between a product business and a services business is not binary. Like my whole life, everyone tells you this, right? Everyone, everyone says like, okay, there's two kinds of business. There's the product businesses and there's the service industry, right? And you got to pick one of those two things. What do you want to do? Is it service? services where you're leveraging time for money, right? Spend time, make money. Don't spend any time, stop making money, right? Or is it a product business where you're leveraging 
manufacturing or production of some sort for long-term recurring uh, money, right? And you got to choose, right? We've got these two paths. What I have finally figured out is that you don't have two paths. Those two things are inextricably linked. You cannot separate them. And if you try to, you're just going to be paying somebody else to do the other one. So when I, I started a series of marketing companies, they were all very successful. But I thought, here I am firmly in the services business. That's not true. I was servicing other people's products, right? Someone else, the product part was still there. It was still linked to everything I did. It's just somebody else was making money off of it. Now I'm in a product business, right? I make board games. The service side, in my case, like the marketing side or all the other services that I rely on, they are still 100% there. My choice is, do I pay somebody else to do it or do I do it myself? And so much so, I've been opting towards doing it myself and learning that those two things are linked, that they require each other, and that any choice you make, you're just going to be paying somebody else to do the other one. Man, I wish I knew that earlier because I would have made such smarter decisions on how to construct the infrastructure of all of my businesses. I see. Well, thank you for being a guest, Elan. Enjoy talking to you and congrats on your success. And I hope you scale even more heights. Thank you so much, Jasper. Nice to meet you.